0: Welcome to The Point. I'm Indy Todd. New Englanders have long celebrated our maritime heritage, from fishing to whaling, shipbuilding to seafaring. Much of our history is entwined with the sea. There's one facet of our maritime heritage that until recently was left out of the narrative, New England's role in the slave trade. Over 1,700 documented transatlantic slaving voyages were made on vessels constructed and registered in Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, or having departed from their seaports. Moreover, New England families and business that bought, sold, or transported commodities such as cotton, sugar, tobacco participated in an economy built on the labor of enslaved people. Later in the hour, how to unearth our community's historical connections to triangular trade and the labor of enslaved people. But first, we welcome Meadow Dibble back to the program. Meadow is the founder and executive director of the Atlantic Black Box Project, a nonprofit engaging the public in the collective rewriting of of our history. Um, Meadow, welcome back. Good to see you.
1: Thanks so much, Mindy. I'm so happy to be back.
0: Meadow, would you tell us the story of when and why you started the Atlantic Black Box Project?
1: Sure. Um, It it dates back to 2016. Um, At the time I was living in Brewster, my hometown where I was born. Um, I was living there once again, now raising my own children in the very neighborhood where I grew up. Um, And I happened upon a headstone. Um, It was in the cemetery right behind the First Parish Church in Brewster, referred to uh, for many, many years as the Sea Captain's Church. And as I had done many times in the past, um, even as a kid, so many times we I, I was just walking with my girls through the cemetery when I came upon a headstone. Where it was inscribed, Benjamin Crosby died in Africa in 1795. And encountering that headstone really turned my world upside down, Mindy, because I had spent six years living in West Africa myself. Um you know, uh born and raised on Cape Cod, I, I found myself um as a junior in college, uh, really fascinated by. Um, by West Africa and managed to make my way there. Um, I spent my junior year of college there and then I returned directly after graduating college, spent another five years living there, um, developing deep friendships, working, uh, and then went on uh, to pursue my graduate studies at Brown University in African studies. Um, And uh, so it came as an utter... Shock to me to realize then at the age of about 41 or so that all this time I had been completely ignorant of a reality which was now staring me in the face, which is that there were deep and long standing connections, in fact, between the place I was from my home and then my adoptive home on the other side of the Atlantic, two places which, on the face of things, seemed to have nothing to do with one another. And when I was in Senegal, for example, and went to the the House of Slaves, as it's called, on Goree Island, um, and the, the curator was discussing the significance of that historic site as a place where enslaved people were put on vessels uh, coming from England, France, um, Dutch vessels, Portuguese vessels, Spanish vessels. never, you know, was there mention that American vessels were also landing at Gore Island and taking captive Africans uh, into slavery in the Americas. Um, so that uh, that encounter with a headstone is what, set me on a course of uh, seeking to uncover Cape Cod's uh, connections to slavery. And in the intro, you mentioned, you know, that uh, the slave trade is one facet um, that we haven't been exploring of of, uh, Cape Cod and the region's maritime history. And one sort of suggestion i would make is that we we shift our lens a little bit and consider that all of our maritime heritage is actually deeply imbricated in uh the in what you could call the slave trade or more broadly writ the economy of enslavement because that was what moved the entire atlantic world economy so what's the meaning behind the name atlantic black box here we're drawing on the image of a black box uh, on an aircraft. These devices have been placed on aircraft since uh, the 1960s, and a black box, you could think of it as a, as an archive, if you will. It's a, it's a, it's a recording device, and it's meant to take down all critical flight data, so that in the event of a tragic crash. If you can recover the black box, you can reconstruct the events that led up to that crash. So again, think of the black box as an archive that has been faithfully recording events, what has happened on the plane. And in recovering the the black box, we're able not only to then create a narrative of what occurred, Um, and hopefully provide some closure to those who are grieving. But the point truly, Mindy, right, is to prevent such a tragedy from ever happening again. And we evoke the notion of the black box in our name to really underscore the fact that history is not something we should do uh, to satisfy some curiosity. Mm -hmm. History must serve. It must serve the present, it must serve the future. So if we think about our historical archive in New England um, and we compare it, say, to the sort of black box that we use on aircraft today, our uh, black box for maritime heritage um, is woefully um, it's 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 woefully sort of underfilled. Um, There's a lot that is missing. We are missing key uh, primary source documents that would help us to uh, understand what occurred in this region and to help us understand why uh, racism persists here today. Um, why racial injustices and disparities are so stark in our region. Um, and yet we find ourselves, you know, with a, a sort of a historical record that is full of gaps. So the work of Atlantic Black Box is to say look, um, we may not find um, every ship log, right? We may not find smoking guns just sort of lying about everywhere, but there are ways to reconstruct what happened here not just here on Cape Cod right but what our vessels were doing out there on the seas the Atlantic and beyond Um, and through uh, triangulation we can come to understand we can in essence retro engineer a black box for the region how are we going to do that we do not produce enough historians in um, you know in our academic settings Uh, People, uh, unfortunately, you know, fewer and fewer young people are majoring in history, let alone specializing, right, in, in maritime history of the Americas. So Atlantic Black Box, what we are doing is saying you don't need to be a professional historian to do this work. Just as in science, we have the wonderful example of citizen scientists who work with uh, professional scientists um, and academics who are in their labs or in their offices, citizen historians go out in the field and they collect critical data um, about butterfly migration, for example, or about the number of pieces of plastic in the ocean. And they bring this information back to the scientists who can then weave a larger, broader picture of, of what it all means, Mm. right? And in that same way, Atlantic Black Box calls on everyone to sort of pick up a shovel at the local level and say, what are my connections to slavery, the slave trade and colonization? What occurred here? How is my house connected to this history? How is my church connected to this history? How is this town that I live in, how was it constructed Mm. through the proceeds of of slavery, uh, the question, Mindy, you'll notice I didn't say is it, mm-hmm. was it, right. but but it we it, but it is. So the question then is to say how, how and then. Right. What does it mean for us mm-hmm. today? What do we do with that information going forward? What does it require of us in terms of repair?
0: Oh, good question. So many of us were taught that the North had very little involvement in slavery or the slave trade, and we celebrate the idea that New England was on the right side of slavery. So, with wealth comes power. What should we consider as we look at the wealth and power of New England and, and their role in in shaping the nation?
1: We have. Um, we have cherished myths in um, on Cape Cod in the islands, and you know in New England more broadly. Um, and this, I would argue, is is really part of what gives us a very particular challenge. In the American South, for example, um, we see plantations um, and we see Confederate monuments. Um, these visible markers of connections to slavery. They are right there in broad daylight, in plain sight, um, recalling uh, these atrocities, these crimes against humanity that were committed. In New England, what we have are beautiful sea captain's mansions, right? We we have quaint little villages um, that we have taken great care to preserve, we have, you know, towns, in fact, that are something like living history museums. Um, and this presents a particular challenge. We have held very tightly to this cherished myth of Northern innocence, right? That we were staunchly on the right side of history. And Mindy, there is nothing much in our immediate environment that would contradict that deeply cherished myth. Uh, and and so it's something of a handicap, I argue, um, because uh, in the absence of those visible markers, we can tell ourselves tales and what we're doing is deceiving ourselves collectively at great expense because the reality is this history does not only, it, the harms, um, certainly the, the most impacted communities, you know, by what happened historically are uh, the black and indigenous communities that were enslaved by northerners um, and sold into slavery. However, white people, the descendants of um, the settler, you know, colonialists also uh, are at our, it's at our great expense that we continue to tell ourselves these false narratives. Um, And so it's in all of our interest really to surface true history and begin that very long process of reckoning.
0: So how, uh... You've been doing this work for a few years now, starting on the Cape and, and now in Maine. What have been some of the significant connections to the trading of enslaved people or the accumulation of wealth connected to the labor of enslaved people that you have uncovered? And I can imagine this is coming as shocking news to many people.
1: Yeah, thanks for that question, Mindy. Um, there there are really, truly, um, we, could, we could talk all day. Um, I, I think I would want to just sort of immediately flag for folks um, a a number of ways to think about this. Um, So one of the ways in which we were able to kind of hide the truth from ourselves for so long is that our connections to slavery largely occurred overseas. So out of sight and out of mind, right? Um, And so, uh, So let's start with participation in the slave trade. Yes, Cape Codders were involved in the slave trade. We have documented proof of this. Many Cape Codders um, and and folks from the islands would have been sailing to Africa um, and it is harder to establish, for example, what they were doing. Could they have been involved in quote unquote legitimate trade um, with Africa? Well, um, in some cases, certainly there were voyages where um, people from the Northeast were purchasing other commodities in in West Africa um, other than captive Africans. However, um, it's very hard to ascertain. And what scholars know is that even in cases where, for example, um, mariners brought back ivory, gold dust, coffee, um, et cetera, they often rounded out their cargoes with captive Africans. Um, So really very difficult to make a a clear distinction between legitimate and illicit um, traffic in in human beings um, when we do not have uh, that critical primary source documentation. But think about this, any any commerce that our captains um, and crewmen would have been doing with West Africa while the slave trade was going on and it, it was at its height, right? Through the 18, we can say it, it continued actively through the 1880s uh, because Brazil w- was still taking in enslaved people. Um, all of that commerce would have been indirect uh, connection to the slave trade. There's no way that you can say go to West Africa, buy some ivory and not be completely imbricated in the slave trade itself. Another really important thing to think about is um, our quote unquote carrying trade or provisioning trade uh, whereby ships from the Northeast sail directly down the Atlantic seaboard um, bringing provisions cargo uh, made up largely, for example, of salted cod, salted herring, um, agricultural products, livestock, um, so grains, anything hardware that could um, supply the plantations of the West Indies, the the Caribbean islands, which were end-to-end covered with Plantations, we could also call them forced labor camps, which is a more correct term for what they were. Um, And this was a primary destination for uh, enslaved Africans, which please understand, when we think about the Caribbean, it calls to mind uh, probably lovely images. Many will have taken vacations down to these islands Um, Cape Cod and the Caribbean have had sort of long-standing ties over the centuries. Um, However, it's critical to remember that these were extremely brutal conditions and that the captive Africans had less than a seven-year life expectancy if they managed to survive the horrific middle passage on these northern vessels to the Caribbean, they had only a seven-year life ex- expectancy because they were worked to death. Mm. Mm. So we, Cape Cod, the North, we had an extremely um, active relationship with those plantations of the West Indies. We were bringing provisions down there um, that made them run, and we were in, um, uh, you know, in in the counter direction. We were bringing sugar molasses rum back to the northeast where that sugar could be processed into rum for example in our many many distilleries in massachusetts and rhode island Um, and then that rum could be used as a commodity for further trading in west africa for captive africans Um, of course i'll just close here the cotton trade in my hometown of brewster Um, there are stories about, you know, there's sort of, we find our sea captains kind of bragging about how much cotton they managed to bring to Liverpool. Um, So much in one case that the vessel almost tipped over on uh, making its way uh, down the the river into the harbor. Uh, This cotton was Southern grown cotton. Uh, So our vessels were responsible for carrying much of this cotton uh, between the American South and uh, the these massive sort of industrial um, textile making uh, cities in in Liverpool um, and in the and in the American North.
0: Yeah. We're talking about the realities of New England's participation in the trading of enslaved people and commodities linked to the labor of enslaved people. With Meadow Dibble from Atlantic Black Box, and we'll have more after a quick break. You're listening to The Point. It's not part of our historical narrative, but New England did participate in the trading of enslaved people, and New Englanders bought, sold, or transported commodities linked to the labor of enslaved people. Today we talk about unearthing the details of this history and making it a part of the historical record. 866-999-4626 is our number. If you'd like to join our conversation, that's 866-999-4626. Our email address, thepoint@capeandislands.org. With us is Meadow Dibble founder and executive director of the Atlantic Black Box Project, a nonprofit engaging the public in the collective rewriting of our regional history. And also joining us now, Reverend Nell Fields, minister at the Coit Congregational Church. Welcome back, Nell. Good to Uh, see you. Good
2: seeing you. Thank you.
0: Lisa Walker's co-executive director of Highfield Hall in Falmouth. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Mindy. And Joanne Ingersoll is director of exhibitions and interpretation at Highfield. Hi, Joanne. Hi. How are you? Good. Now, your congregation has begun to explore community connections to the Atlantic slave trade. So what
2: precipitated all of this? We are celebrating our 175th anniversary. Our church was founded in 1848. And in preparation for that celebration, we started looking at the past. Who are we? Who were the founders of our church? We were very fortunate that one of the uh, our great-great-grandfathers of, of the church was a person by the name of Zenas Hamlin, and he was an abolitionist. He and his wife were abolitionists, and of course, we were very proud of that. And then we started thinking, who else was part of the founding of our church? What is, uh, what is their connection to Bekoit? Um, You know, w- w- what is our history? And the first place we started looking at is our cemetery. And we have a lot of sea captains in our cemetery. And you start looking at dates, and we begin to question, what were they doing out at sea? Was everybody wailing for two years at a time, and then they came back and relaxed? And through asking questions, we came across um, Meadow's work, and we just stopped. It took our breath away. And so here we are uh, really trying to reconcile uh, who we are as a faith community today, and are we willing— to look at who we may have been, uh, it, it, it it's it's tough work, yeah. M- Mindy, but we have to do it, and yeah. we want to do it, right?
0: Lisa Highfield uh, Hall is undertaking a similar work, uh, looking specifically at the Beebe family, the original owners of the house. So, talk about when and why you started that work. Sure, thanks, Mindy. Um, I think it was the last time you had Meadow
3: on the show. I was listening, and something she said struck me. Um, she was talking about the sea captain's homes in Maine, the grand houses and mansions in Maine, and she said, you must look at these big houses and know that there was always some connection to enslavement um, for the wealth that built those homes. And I stopped and I thought, well, here we are in the north and we have this grand house, Highfield Hall, and while the Beebe family who built the house were not... um, Uh, whalers or um, sea captains, they were dry good merchants. So here's this other commodity that you have that Meadow mentioned earlier, which is cotton. And while we had no, um, currently no real knowledge of any direct connection to um, enslaved people, we do have archives that were just recently given to us. And Joanne, who will speak a little bit later, has been pulling through those archives. And she's gleaning bits of information about how whether it's, uh, as I said, direct or indirect, there was a connection most likely to slavery hmm. with the BB family. And yeah. we want to now acknowledge that history, um, not ignore it, and bring it sort of to the forefront or let let people know that, yes, this is a grand home, here we are, but there was probably some connection to
0: slavery. Right. We have to own it. Yeah. Joanne, tell us more about the research and some of the materials that you're using.
4: Well, um. First of all, the archive consists of about 37 boxes of papers related to the BB family that had been in storage um for many years and um the bulk we haven't gone through all of them and um and, and in fact this is a first pass whatever we're doing at the at the moment is a first pass but um we are finding some interesting correspondence that is shedding light on the next generation of the BBs. Um, so JM James Madison BB was the patriarch and the dry goods merchant who built the family wealth um, from that business. And he died in 1875. But what's very fascinating, so if we have to look back, this is not part of the archive, but just to to get the context of his workings. Um, And what happened in the U.S. in the 19th century, he started his dry goods business in um, 1830. He's first established, actually 1829, he, in the Boston directory, you see that he um, claims dry goods as his business. And the following year, he has a partner. And then it becomes, over subsequent years, uh, a massive wholesaling business with various partners coming in and out every year. But he's based in Boston, and um, what happened also in 1830 is basically the time when cotton became the um, most important agricultural export um, in the country and uh, surpassing wheat. And partly the reason for that is the industrialization of, um, of, of the industry and of growing cotton and the, and the cotton gin and separating so that happened earlier, but um, uh, in the late 18th century. Um, but but the time when cotton is now seen as a much more uh, profitable um, crop, that forced a um, what I think is still called the largest forced migration from the north to the south in um, in a uh, soul south was the term. Um, moving um, the enslaved people who had been working, say, in the mid-Atlantic states in things like tobacco, um, they all moved south to Georgia, South Carolina, um, uh, in in those areas to work on this um, growing business. So um, Beebe had business interests. He wasn't just a wholesaler. He, along with a lot of other Boston merchants, they pooled their capital, and they were investing in building mills and actually, banks as well. But um, so there's no doubt that um, what happened in the South, what was also happening in the North, was the growth of our industrialization and the building of um, mill cities that took over the took over the landscape and um, became the heart of the economy in in our country and totally tied with the the cotton crop mm. and. Um, So I did find um, outside of the archives, some primary source materials uh, from the BB company from 1850s and a number of them are bill heads. So I can see clearly what he is reselling. And there are bales of cotton listed amongst other things like fancy goods, imported goods, you know, lady scarves. So fancy finished goods as well as the raw materials. And he's selling them to mills. Um, So I, yeah. there's no doubt. You know, you, I didn't have to dig very far for that yeah. information. It's like,
0: like detective work, like a puzzle, putting all this
2: together. So yeah. now, yeah. So now, yeah. Um, how are you going about the research at the church? Um, looking at uh, secondary and primary resources, um, going to the cemetery, recording the names of the uh, seafaring folk, and then doing research on them. And we're just, we're really just beginning. Uh, unfortunately, our faith community wasn't very good at keeping records at all. So we are uh, in some ways starting from the very beginning just with names. And that's one of the reasons we were very excited uh, connecting with Meadow uh, so we can learn how do we do this research um, effectively and also with open eyes? Right. Because right. we don't even know what those open eyes look like, quite yes. frankly. So, Meta, what are some resources
0: individuals or organizations can use if they don't have an archive like Joanne?
1: Certainly. Yeah, I just want to say, uh, Mindy, I, I, I love what these two organizations are doing. Um, it's so heartening uh, to see folks digging in um and taking responsibility for uncovering uh their their own connections to these uh these stories so it's um it is challenging work uh in in many respects um we often hear institutions um sort of bemoan we don't have the resources to do this either time or money um or or you know, the documents simply do not exist that would allow us to do that work. And um, what we have found is that while it is, uh, of of course, you you know, there are many things competing for our attention um, and there's no doubt, but that this is challenging work. It is absolutely possible and uh, it is necessary and critical. Um, We've been uh, sort of willfully, ignorant uh for far too long and um so I just really want to applaud these these two institutions uh for taking up this important work um so how to go about doing the research we found that um forming groups it's it's certainly possible for individuals to um to say okay I'm going to um I, you know i'm going to devote all of my free time to reconstructing the history of this particular family or this particular church certainly um, there are uh pitfalls um we caution um one of them I'll, i'll give just one really quick example that um something that happened to me at the very outset of my journey i call this a journey of historical recovery right um, I went to the Nickerson Archive at Cape Cod Community College and a wonderful archivist there received me well. And I said, um, I said to her, what can you show me? Do you have any documents related to Cape Cod's connections to slavery or the slave trade? And she said, oh, funny you should ask. I, here, we we have this document. She handed me um, uh, a two, two things. Um, one, the a copy of, um, the original document, um, forgetting the exact date right now, but it was a proceeding that took place in Barstable County courthouse. Um, and it was a dispute between two men. Um, and, uh, the, she, she handed me also the transcript. So naturally I read the transcript first, um, a lot easier than trying to decipher, um, that challenging script. And in it, um, it, it, you know, I came to realize this was about slaves, it said, right? It was clearly marked that the dispute was about slaves. One man couldn't pay um, what he had promised immediately, and so the other had taken him to court. Well, I had at that time also been reading Wendy Warren's really important work, New England Bound, and I had this recollection that the word slaves was not frequently used um, during the time in which this proceeding was taking place. So I woke up literally in the middle of the night, like three days later, and I ran down to my computer and I I took the original document and blew it up like 300% to look at those words um, that had been interpreted as slaves and found there was a little line crossing the L which suggested to me it could be about staves and not slaves, mm-hmm. staves, barrel staves. So, what are these? Um, this we New England was uh, a ma- major producer of barrel staves, um, and so these are these uh, strips of wood that are then used to to, to make barrels um, and containers of different sizes into which the molasses would be poured or the sugar or any other trade good, right? And um, that's how things were transported in the day. So there I was thinking I had a smoking gun in my hands Mm -hmm. that this was about slaves. It was in fact, I believe about staves, although uh, perhaps um, we, you know, perhaps we'll find out Um, a a handwriting expert will reveal that no, in fact that was (laughs) slaves. But I share this story to make a bigger point. Um, It is really important. Like we all, what we see, we're looking through a very particular lens. We do much better work when we collaborate. Um, So we need one another. Atlantic Black Box really recommends forming uh, groups. So um, we have a wonderful example of this in a group of folks in the Kennebunkport area. They have formed a group called Just History. Um, One of them uh, is the reverend at the church. One of them is connected to the local historical museum. One of them is um, in politics. One of them is an educator. Um, They are all deeply invested in understanding their own community's connections to slavery. So each brings their own lens, their own expertise, their own skills, and they work together. This is the model that we really want to Um, promote and encourage. Yeah. We're
0: talking about the realities of New England's participation in the trading of enslaved people and commodities. 866-999-4626 is our number. Our email address, thepointatcapeandislands.org. We'll talk more after a break. You're listening to The Point. We're talking about the realities of New England's participation in the trading of enslaved people and commodities linked to the labor of enslaved people. Uh, I I like, Meadow, your term journey of historical recovery. I think that's a great way to frame it. Uh, With us is Meadow Dibble, founder and executive director of the Atlantic Black Box Project, a nonprofit engaging the public in the collective rewriting of our regional history. Reverend Nell Fields, minister at Recoit Congregational Church. Lisa Walker, co-executive director of Highfield Hall in Falmouth, and Joanne Ingersoll's director of exhibitions and interpretation at highfield 866-999-4626 is our number our email address the point at capeandislands.org Meadow history is complicated people aren't all good or all bad so how do we frame this conversation so we're not creating an atmosphere of judgment or assessing
1: blame but allows for the truth to come forward that question mindy i think uh, i think it's right on um i I think it's helpful to ask ourselves, you know, again, what is history actually for? How should history serve the present? on Cape Cod, um, a place that is uh, very, very dear to my heart. So please, you know, um I do hope that everyone understands that everything I say is i'm um, I'm not looking at the Cape through a critical lens. Again, this is not just about Cape Cod. It's not just about New England. Um, it's not just about the United States of America. This is global history. Um, we have globally all been invested deeply in slavery, exploitation, oppression of all kinds. And um, and the question that uh, we need to ask ourselves as we look to today, as as Reverend Nell said, you know, who do we want to be? What kind of a community? Um, Do we want to to form? Um, Do we wanna be inclusive and welcoming? Do we want uh, all people to feel valued based on their inherent dignity and worth? Do we wanna create space for everyone, right? Um, And if if we ask ourselves those two questions in tandem, how should history serve? What is it for? And who do we want to be as a people? Um, I think it helps get us get us away from this sort of binary um, that we often find ourselves in that you described a bit, Mindy, the, the good, bad um dichotomy. I another way to put it is um do we when we look at our history, um, are we looking to feel a sense of pride? Um, if so, then then yes looking at this darker aspect of our past which was so significant could cause us to feel shame but let me put this in a different way why are we looking to history to help us um you know live with a sense of pride why should it be pride and shame the motivating factors is history not simply um reality as it occurred in the past. It's reality. It's like gravity, right? It's a. It's it's a. It's a. It's something that is undeniable. Um, and so, you know, I, I think if we go back to the the notion of the black box as an archive, um, it can help ground us in why it's critical to actually have an actual factual accounting of what occurred in the places where we live and uh, love and, and, and labor. It's because the forces that created those places, the culture that grew up out of those historical forces, it is still acting upon us today. It's still reverberating and we're still dealing with its legacies.
0: Uh, we have an email from Sean who says, uh, please ask your Atlantic Black Box guest if purchasing from and doing commerce with China today is akin to her, her historical linking of New England shipping and slavery. As it goes, produce an incredible amount of goods bought by Americans. How is that relationship different than your guest proposed connections?
1: So there are, of course, many contemporary correlates um, that we can look at and must. We, You know, part of this... the why this work is so important um, is so that we can look at all of our practices, um, all of our choices as human beings, but also our practices around consumption um, and ask ourselves, is this ethical? Do I know, right, the source of this product? Going back, you know, a couple of centuries when sugar, our craving for sugar, was driving the transatlantic slave trade. Um, the, there were people, in, in particular, there were women who boycotted sugar, saying, "I will not consume, I will not satisfy my personal craving for this, um, you know, uh, treat at the cost of human lives countless human lives. So we do need to be absolutely asking ourselves those same questions today. Um, to the, um, the individual who, who wrote in with that question, I would also say, however, um, that even as we are using this history to look at our present and our future choices, we do need to stay with the past. Um, so that, um, In other words, let us not divert our attention away from history um, to look exclusively at the present and future. Uh, There is nothing comparable, nothing comparable to uh, the enslavement of millions of Africans in chattel slavery over the course of centuries. We have not properly even begun to acknowledge right? Let alone understand the depth and breadth of our involvement in that crime against humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so let's not turn away from that um, anytime soon.
0: Now, what's been the response of members of your congregation about doing this work?
1: Um, I
2: think for the most part, uh, we realize that doing this work is part of who we are as people of faith. We are called— to remember, not only remember the things that we are proud of, but also to remember the things that we've done in our past that we do feel ashamed. I think it's okay to feel ashamed as long as we realize we can overcome that with truth. We can overcome that by Uh, changing who we are right now, living into a new future. One of the things we ask ourselves, what are we doing now to be a welcoming community? What are we doing now to repair, to begin to repair the past? Whether we were directly involved in it or not, our community was involved in it. Meadow reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. She says, Nell, in some way, she says, Nell, don't be naive. They weren't out wailing all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lisa, same
0: question. Uh, has the board of, uh, of of donors there at Highfield, how are they responding about you undertaking this research? So th- That's a great question. Um, and it, I want to
3: actually go back a little bit um, to what Meadow was talking about with history being a reality and, and actually what Nell was just saying now. Last fall we had an exhibit called I Am My White Ancestors by Ann Maver and it was looking at sort of the history of of, of oppression and having people look back through their ancestry and claim what their ancestors did. We wanted to—this is when we originally wanted to become involved with um, Atlantic Black Box Project. But we had some donors and members call in um, and say to us, what are you doing putting this exhibit on? Art should just be pretty mm. and not political mm. and and not— um, create these feelings of sort of angst. One woman actually said or asked us, are we trying to make her feel guilty? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she was tired of that. Joanne actually reached out to that woman and had a, a conversation with her and explained that really, you know, there is no such thing as just pretty art, that there is always a story behind art. And mm-hmm. most oftentimes art is political. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't even, we don't just want to look at the BB family Highfield is a gallery. We present music there. And the best way to tell stories and maybe start discussions is through looking at art or music and bringing up the stories then, but having people start the discussion. Now tell us more about
2: your upcoming talk with Meadow. Uh, It is Thursday, February 22nd, 6 p.m. It is going to be held in our historic sanctuary, Built in 1848, so everybody gets to feel the, the, the hard wooden pews. Um, Meadow is going to be talking about her work, encouraging us to collaborate together to uncover the history here on Cape Cod. That presentation is free. Um, we are going to r- record it. Uh, so it'll be available for people who aren't able to come. So it'll be six to seven, uh, be a presentation, and then 30 minutes for Q&A. All right.
0: So, Meadow, we just have about a, a minute or so left. So clues, what, what people can look for. You started with a cemetery. Nell started with a cemetery. Uh, <laughs> Highfield started, you know, with the, the archives. What what can people be looking for?
1: Yeah. So, and one thing I, I really failed to mention um, at the top of the show when I was sort of listing the sort of major ways in which we are involved in uh, the history of enslavement um, is enslavement right there on Cape Cod. Um, so I would actually encourage everyone uh, to um, to go to your town's vital records. And um, some towns uh, have better records than others. Um, if you can look for the originals, not the typed up copies, You could, if you find originals and the types, you could compare the two. Often what we find is that people have been left off The record, and we want to recover their names. We want to know who lived in our communities.
0: We're going to post a link with more information to the Atlantic Black Box Project at our website, capeandislands.org. Meadow Dibble, founder and executive director of the Atlantic Black Box Project, Reverend Nell Fields, minister at Wacoit Congregational Church, Lisa Walker, co executive director of Highfield Hall in Falmouth, and Joanne Ingersoll, director of exhibitions and interpretation at Highfield. Thank you all for being here. Very fascinating conversation. Thanks for being with us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mindy. I'm Mindy Todd. Thanks for listening.
4: Point is produced by Amy Vince. The executive producer is Mindy Todd. Production assistance from Jenny Junker and Dan Tridell. Theme music by Benjamin Verdery and William Coulter.